0: This is a CBC podcast.
1: The first refugees from Sudan arrived in Calgary in 1989. Today, the city is believed to have the largest Sudanese diaspora in Canada, with a population of approximately 17,000, mostly from South Sudan. It's a community that Ellis Cho has gotten to know
2: personally. The introduction kind of began when I volunteered at my church. Um, to help out a Sudanese family that was uh, being co-sponsored um, as a refugee family.
1: Ellis works as an associate producer on The Home Stretch, CBC Radio's afternoon show in Calgary, and the family
2: her church co-sponsored. They happen to be the relatives of one of our church members. So I put up my hand and said, I'll help, I'll volunteer to help get them settled and, you know, do all the paperwork, take care of, registrations for school and healthcare, care, all those kinds of things, taking them to banking appointments. And when they arrived, I mean, they looked so shell-shocked at the airport, but uh, oh, they were just, they're just lovely people. The family already had housing lined up, so
1: in those first few days, Ellis helped set it up. Bedding, clothes, kitchen stuff, running around with the other volunteers, excitedly imagining this
2: family's new life. And because they had this extended family network here already, I did all the logistical things and I just trusted that because they had this immediate social emotional support system in place with their extended family, um, I thought they'd be comfortable, you know, familiar. But um, I learned later that this wasn't enough.
1: I mean, how much did you know about Calgary's Sudanese community before you met this family?
2: Well, at the time, I knew very little. Very little to to nothing. um, Except for the few Sudanese members in my church, who included the family, of course, and some of the Lost Boys. The Lost Boys of Sudan. It's the name
1: given to thousands of children, some as young as six years old, who walk together en masse... For months to get to refugee camps.
2: And these are kids who were orphaned or got separated from their parents during the chaos of Sudan's Second Civil War. The civil war between northern and
1: southern Sudan lasted from 1983 to 2005. It was largely a continuation of the country's first civil war of 1955. Despite a peace treaty, conflict continued until 2011. That's when the new country of South Sudan was born. But then, South Sudan faced its own civil war, two years later. Political instability in South Sudan is ongoing. Over the past 40 years, these conflicts have killed more than an estimated 2 million people and displaced millions more, contributing to one of the largest refugee crises in the world. According to the UN Refugee Agency, since 2013 alone, more than 2 million South Sudanese have fled to neighboring African countries. Thousands then kept going, kept searching for safety, settling in places like Calgary,
2: seeking that better life. That's why all immigrants come, right? They want a better life. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to volunteer to help this family settle is because I come from an immigrant background. Um, And so I felt like I had the experience and, you know, a bit of the knowledge. Mind you, I came here when I was very, very young. Um, But the understanding of the cultural, language, food kind of barriers, I thought I could relate and help them out. But over the years, I discovered they're facing more than the usual newcomer challenges. Um, I knew they would struggle at the beginning because of course they came from trauma, from they're running away from civil war which I did not, and many immigrants don't. So I knew there would be additional layers um, to deal with. But I learned that the Calgary Sudanese community, like they're suffering from some overwhelming problems, like not just little road bumps, typical, if I could say that word, <laughs> typical newcomer challenges. They have problems that the community itself has trouble talking about. Um, there are issues, so that I think... they deserve a lot of attention, more attention, more awareness, so that they can get help from both inside and outside the community.
1: I'm A.C. Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Today, the story of a community struggling to keep itself afloat in a new country in the wake of the traumas caused by Sudan's civil wars.
2: They want to leave and escape war and trauma to seek a safer place to grow and settle. A better life. That's what we're all seeking, right? A better life. But sadly, they, they are coming here only to regret their decision.
1: This is the story of why that is. What's happening to part of Calgary's South Sudanese community and how a group of local leaders are trying to change things for the better. Ellis Cho will take it from here.
2: Stephen Deng and his family fled the civil war in Sudan and moved to a refugee camp in Ethiopia. That's when war broke out in that country, too. It was 1996 and Stephen was 10 years old. In the chaos, he got separated from his family. He says that's when he became a lost boy. he ended up walking barefoot for nearly a 1,000 kilometres for six months, with thousands of other children to a refugee camp in Kenya.
3: I walk barefoot, no clothes, no food, no water. Sometimes we have to borrow each other's urine to survive, and sometimes we have to hit the leaves from the tree.
2: Surviving on leaves and sometimes drinking each other's urine They walked at night to avoid being shot by soldiers. They tried to make enough noise to keep the lions and other wildlife away. People along the way told them to keep walking towards Kenya. They didn't even know where that was, but they were directed to cross a river. A river filled with crocodiles.
3: And that crocodile is killing a lot of children. Because it's just cropping them, cropping them. And then from crossing the river, standing there on the shore of the river without clothes, without food, without nothing, it's just being uh, life. That's the most important. So they tell us, the people that are there, they tell us that keep continue that direction and keep walking. And then we continue walking, 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 and All you could do is just encourage each other. We could do it. You don't even know how you could do it. But we keep walking and some of the community that we coming through, sometimes they welcoming, sometimes they, it's like, okay, keep going that direction. And then we keep walking.
2: He says they started out as 32,000 children, but only 20,000 made it. Still separated from his family, Stephen lived in a refugee camp in Kenya for eight
3: years. It's a very stressful uh, experience, but uh, as long as I'm still alive, I block my mind from all this, and I try to tell myself to be a person that I dream to be.
2: By the time he arrived in Canada in 2004, he was 18, and all by himself. It wasn't until two years later, while settled in Calgary, that he finally located his mother in Ethiopia and gave her a call. But she couldn't believe he was who he said he was, until he mentioned something only he and his mother could know, the memory of his favorite milk from his favorite
3: cow. And I named the cow, and finally he just admitted, he just said, that's you.
2: He finally paid a visit to Ethiopia, where he had an emotional reunion with his mother in 2013. But by then, after nine years in Canada, Calgary was Stephen's home. He obtained a diploma in social work before getting a degree in psychology. Akir Melkwal is another refugee from Sudan. I met her through one of the young women in the refugee family my church co-sponsored. Akir's whole family, all 21 of them, including parents, a grandmother, and lots of kids, had fled to Cairo in Egypt. Akir's memories of Sudan, though, are hazy.
4: I don't recall much. I recall a lot of moving around. I was very young, I would say. From the time of birth till I was eight years old, I recall a lot of paperwork being done, family being busy, trying to leave the country as soon as possible without telling anyone. I didn't know what was happening much because there wasn't a lot of communication as to why we're leaving, why we have to go urgently. I only found out when we
2: arrived to Cairo, Egypt. Then in October 2000, they made their way to Canada, where Akir went to school for the first time in her life. I didn't go to school until the age of 11.
4: The difficulties just didn't, I guess, allow my parents to be able to register all of us in school, and being also one of the youngest, moving around a lot. Uh, trying to be protected by any means. Um, When we moved to Canada, it was the first time that I was registered in school. I started in grade 6 due to my age. My first day of school was very, I would say, horrifying, shocking. I didn't speak English. Different faces, different environment. How to hold the pen, how to write neatly, how to spell few words, um, how to hold the paper a certain way, um, what lines to skip. It was it was very difficult, and I was at some point. I think I was a little bit traumatized. Growing up in Calgary at first was difficult because language barrier, new culture, new system, new food, new wardrobe, everything was new. Plus, I personally met other South Sudanese or other Africans who didn't like Canada, who came to Canada when they were old enough to have an opinion about where they live and uh, the trauma that they went through or are still going through was very very spoken about often so they would complain and say i wish i wasn't here why did my parents bring me here we were fine where we were i don't like it here the teachers are mean to me the students are mean They always compare me to a monkey or call me monkey. You're too dark. Does your skin shed? Do you get lighter in winter? A lot of racist comments that are often spoken about. At first, it almost got to me, but I'm a very, very friendly person. And I would say I picked that from my dad. He walks into the room and he lights the room up. So, for me, that was one of my strengths. I can walk in and just shift this negative
2: conversation into something positive and laugh about it. Despite everything Akira endured in Canada, there were also things she saw here that she wanted. She started envisioning a future for herself. That
4: doesn't mean that I didn't have any opportunities to drop out from school, miss school. I I was just determined. I wanted a different life. I saw people driving cars, girls driving cars. I wanted a car too. How am I going to get that? I need money. How do I get money? I need to work. What kind of job? Well, I had a lot of choices to make.
2: So she set her focus on getting a counseling degree. That way she could help people.
4: And that kept me focused because I wanted a certain future. Not the past I lived, but the future that I wanted was very bright,
2: very educational. She works as a family counselor by day, and by night and on weekends, she volunteers her time to help her community, other Sudanese refugees like herself. Because the needs, there are a lot of them. We come from families that are large. Um, We have
4: families who have seven eight nine ten eleven twelve children like my family my mom had 12 children um biological and also uh other family members that lived with us we always had a large amount of people in one house so when we moved to canada we all of us together were 21 and it was a news breaking in Calgary because back then there was only few South Sudanese. So coming in a large number, everybody is trying to find out who are these people? How did they manage to come? So we're culturally encouraged to have a lot of children. Um, And imagine if you have seven children and let's say the marriage broke apart, maybe the wife left or the husband left, you're now single a single parent. So you have seven children, poverty. Let's say you're living in Calgary housing, which most, most are living in Calgary housing, um, very poor neighborhoods. I have visited Calgary housing, some areas, and it's very sad. It, it's, it's really, really sad. Uh, people look at the uh, pictures and, and videos of Africa, how they live, poor environment. Yeah, let's not be deceived. It's happening in Calgary, Alberta, and it's, it's really bad. So imagine you're in Calgary housing, seven children. Husband is gone or wife is gone, seven children at home. The older ones um, want to survive. They want new things. They want money. They want to go out for lunch, but you can't give them money. You don't have money. What's the next option? Some guys at school or in the community are dealing drugs. Or, um, they're doing some interesting things to gain money. Okay, well, let me try it out. So then they get into it. And then the next thing you know, they're buying brand new things. Gucci, Michael Kors, I mean, high-end stuff. And they're enjoying that lifestyle. So now they'll do anything to keep that lifestyle. How do you get them out? So a lot of young men or women get out of the house or end up being killed or in jail due to trying to have a better life. And it's very sad because we're thinking coming from South Sudan, is gonna be great here, don't worry about it. But if you're gonna apply for some jobs, even right now, you need to have a high school diploma, you need to have some sort of degree, some sort of diploma. And imagine struggling in junior high, in high school. What certificate are you gonna obtain? Plus, the trauma that I was not dealt with. We don't receive counseling. Nobody talks to us about
2: counseling. Akir never received counseling when she arrived as a child. Neither did Stephen Deng, after his journey as a lost boy. That trauma, along with the other factors Akir mentioned, has led to jail time and deaths among young Sudanese. Stephen works as a counselor at a mental health center for children.
3: A lot of young people are dying right now, and those are the young people the community dream of. They are the future of the community. In our culture, Elders are the one going first, and then the children will come after. And right now here, children are the one dying first, and the elders are just left lap- helpless. They don't even know what to do with this. It's very stressful for, uh, community to talk, because we don't know how to target this, and, uh, we have no where to turn and tell the, uh, and tell the authorities that this is a way that we, we need help with. And because of the, those miscommunication and negative relationship that the community have with, uh, with the authority, there's no dialogue, there's no way to work together in a way that we could help those young people.
2: Neither the Calgary police nor the province currently carry race-based data. But from those I spoke to, funerals for young people have become far too common in the Sudanese community over the last 10 years.
5: Everybody does know somebody who has um, died or passed away, I would say, here in Calgary because of either gang violence, drugs, or some sort of early, an early death that could have been preventable, I would say. Maddie John says she
2: was a very broken single mom before meeting a Now the two are close friends. Maddie came to Canada when she was nine. She was born in a refugee camp in Kenya after her family fled Sudan.
5: I know a lot of people who have passed away, Um, people that I grew up with, people that I went to high school with, people that I went to elementary school with, um, people who I've known back home that came here also, who have passed away from gang violence, drug use, um, just being out in the streets getting caught in some sort of a situation to be honest it makes me feel like our community is cursed or something um i don't know if that's the right word to use for it but that's what it makes me feel like because i'm like why is it so close to home every single time it's one of those things where yes you hear of people dying from gangs and violence and drugs on the news or you see that in in newspapers and you don't know those people but to see those stories and know the person or have had some sort of an encounter with them at one point in your life um, it's actually quite crazy like I don't really know what words to say it's just overwhelming.
2: Stephen is gutted by the number of funerals he's attended for young people in the community.
3: It's heartbreaking. I'm thinking about my children as well. How would they see other children that are dying and how this mother and father that bringing their children here, how do they feel? Last year alone, we have about 15 deaths. Some of them are drug-related. Some of them are gang-related. And some of them are just two-side related While it's getting worse and worse, when it starts, it start a little bit uh, like a 10, 7. It does. And it keeps increasing. It keeps increasing. I think it's because of the drug, like pentanol and overdose. And it's too many. It's too many that the community can cope with it.
2: Last October alone saw five deaths in the community. Akir says it was strange because four of them were young women, and usually they're young men. She says people in the community think drug overdoses may be the cause, but there's nothing official. They're still waiting for autopsy results.
4: We have gone through so much, so many deaths, so many family separations, so many family breaking apart so many young girls young men in mental institutions it breaks my heart you know a lot of tragedy has been happening among the youth due to some choices that they make certain lifestyle they choose we don't have control over we're very very sad and very I would say some regret coming to Canada because they thought running away from war, running away from lack of education. So a lot regret why they came.
2: Tragedy has also hit close to home for Akir in her family.
6: My name is Joseph Jal. Last year, uh, I lost my younger brother. Gang violence. Um, he was twenty-two years old.
2: Joseph Jal is Akira's husband and the pastor of Cross Point Miracle Center Church. Joseph also came as a refugee from South Sudan in two thousand two, along with his mom and five brothers and sisters.
6: My brother H R Jal, um, he was he was shot on uh, December 30th of twenty nineteen. Him and his friend, uh, his friend passed away the same night. But him, he survived uh, 11 days. And then he passed on 11th um, of January of 2020. Um, it was tough for us, of course, as a family. Um, but we know that it's part of life. Is it? Uh, I will say it shouldn't be. Um, but it's a path that uh, a lot of uh, South Sudanese kids took. And ultimately, uh, it caused the, caused the community to grieve. When you're around a lot of mothers, you see them are basically crying. They're going through a lot of depression, um, hoping that we bring our kids to Canada you know, to better themselves, and now we're losing our children in gang violence. And the saddest part of it is uh, when they pass, most of the crime they are never solved. So South Sudan's community basically feel like uh, the system had failed them because most of the time they can catch people who are responsible for those crimes. That's the biggest challenge. So now you're having those South Sudanese kids and community are basically broken in a sense that they can not trust the system itself. That's why you see that we are isolated. Yes, we're in Canada, but we are isolated in a sense that we don't trust the system.
2: Akir says gang activity crosses cultural borders. But while it's bigger than just the Calgary Sudanese community, they feel disproportionately impacted and ignored. Grieving families want answers from the police, but Joseph says that relationship has been eroded.
6: I wouldn't touch the justice system because they had failed the community uh, in a lot of ways. I believe that there should be um, some accountability and some response uh, for example, um, in the case of my brother, uh, when he was killed, and we tried to follow up with the uh, detective, um, I have been calling the detective for four or five months. No response, no call, nothing. And I came to find out that he quit or he moved to another department without giving us the detail of the new detective. So we are left there trying to find out, you know, how the process is going and um what should we do? What are we expecting? You know, how's the investigation going? And all of these things. Of course, they can't share every details, but at least give us something, you know, as a closure. Just trying to figure out what had happened to your loved one, but there is no response. It's very painful.
1: AC here. Coming up, Ellis takes this conversation to the Calgary Police Service. We'll be right back. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control.
2: From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. The Calgary Police Service has faced many calls for systemic change from racialized communities, especially after the protests sparked by the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis last year. According to the Calgary Catholic Immigration Society, many Sudanese have had some sort of negative incident with the police, such as being pulled over for no reason, Akira says part of the problem is that rather than genuine and ongoing police intervention with young people, law enforcement instead rely on tactics that only cause more tension and mistrust. She says racial profiling especially is an issue for her community. I'm going to give you an example. There was a young man who showed up to school and
4: w- with a fur jacket and the principal decided to call the police um, because she thought he could have stolen it because it looks expensive. So she called the police, and the police came, handcuffed him in front of, I mean, it's the school starting. Everybody's putting their things in the locker, and the next thing you know, you're being arrested. So he's taken to the office, and the, um, the principal said, well, I think this jacket is stolen because it looks so expensive. I guess she knows the store. And... um The young man was questioned and he was like, I bought this jacket. I was given money gift and I wanted this jacket for a while, but I finally got it. And they didn't believe him. They had to call the store. The store had to go through the cameras and identify that indeed this young man was there. He bought the jacket. Now... What kind of faith would a young man have on the police? How can we rewind the fact that you just embarrassed this kid in front of the entire school? How do we go back and explain to all the children that, oh, we're sorry, he was telling the truth? These kind of stories come our way every time. So I was trying to tell the police um, chief chief of police officers I said it's very important that you give the benefit of a doubt the police would have been called if that jacket was stolen something would have happened the moment that jacket was missing What what happened there just told this kid that you're not on that kind of level to wear what you're wearing so if you're wearing it you're either stealing it or you're getting it dirty. So how do our young men trust that police would be on their side? A lot of youth or adults are speaking out. Parents are speaking out. Organizations are speaking out. Um, Professionals are speaking out against um, the racism that's happening in the police force, um, the misunderstanding, the you know aggressive behaviors towards the young people. So everyone is talking, everyone is complaining and saying, something needs to get done or this will not
2: get better. Earlier this year, Calgary Police Service appointed members to a new anti-racism action committee, Its mandate? To identify systemic barriers to accessing police programs and services. A strategy hasn't been released yet, but Akir Melkwal says she already notices a change.
4: It feels good.
2: It feels good that they are humble enough to ask
4: questions. They are humble enough to not be offended um, at certain behaviors. And they are um, humble and also receptive of the information we're providing. I do have hope that the relationship between the community and the police is getting better and will get better because now we're working together. We're asking questions. We're getting to the bottom of the problem. We're providing resources unless someone chooses not to participate, but
2: we're there to help the police and the police is helping us there's also a new liaison for the community at the calgary police service someone who can kind of relate
0: my name is abdi Hassan. i'm a constable with the calgary police service uh, my role is i work with the diversity unit uh, my portfolios are the latin and african communities I, I know i've only been in this role for three months but uh, our, my my relationship with the community uh, because i come from an african background um I feel they are more trusting towards me and they are excited in in working with me um, as as they feel like uh, I would understand their community needs every community has challenges when they when they come into Canada right so I think honestly is when when the youth come to Canada they ha- are dealing with uh, that sense of belonging right so along with, the sense of belonging comes understanding and adapting to the cultures of Canada. It it, it might be a difficult time for them. So that's where the risk of, of them joining gangs or having these criminal issues and, and things like that. But for us, Coming back to the Calgary Police Service, we we work very closely again with the community and we have prevention programs out there uh, where we have the YARD program, youth at risk development program that deals with youth that are at risk with gangs. Um, We we have the redirect program that deals with prevention of radicalization or violence. Uh, We also have the Mass program that deals with the very young kids from 5 to 12 uh, who are having issues at school.
2: There are many programs and resources, but not everyone knows about them. I didn't know about them when trying to help my refugee family. And if people do, they can't always access them because they don't have cars or they're working or they don't understand English.
0: And that's the thing. uh, That's a great point that you made as well. I think it's our job to educate, right? So we have a thing called You and the Law. It's a presentation that we have uh, where we deliver to newcomers in, in Calgary. So it, it's for newcomers that come to Canada to understand our laws and rules that we have in Canada. And it, and it's a great place where they could ask questions regarding that. And I feel it is it is very beneficial.
2: Have you done a talk like that for the Sudanese?
0: Yes, we have. Uh, we've had many organizations uh, where uh, there's a lot of Sudanese people in the community, but is it trickling down to everyone in the community, right? So I think, yes, it's something I've only been here for three months, but it's something that I need to work on where I need to go out in the community, uh, maybe educate in the ground roots level upwards, right? So yeah.
2: if only members of the community could access those resources, For example, they would understand the consequences of a criminal record and how it will follow you for the rest of your life in Canada. In Sudan, there is no criminal record. Akir says you serve your time in jail, you get out and start your life again. Stephen Deng, the lost boy we heard from earlier, he wanted to help improve relations between law enforcement and the community. Though he understands why others don't, Stephen has faith in the Calgary police based on his own experiences. In 2015, he became the first Sudanese graduate of the Calgary Police Service Auxiliary Cadet Program.
3: I want to set an example. I want to bridge the gap that uh, many of the uh, cultural community have with, with uh, Calgary Police Services. Some of them, they see police as an enemy. And some of them, they simply see the police in a very negative way, which is not true. That's not what it is in Calgary Police Services. It's not what it is they think it is. But I wouldn't blame them because they don't know it. They come from different cultural backgrounds that police are not very much respected in the community, and that's not what it is here. I want to show them that they are the people that are there to help you out. They are not there to do anything bad to you. They are there to protect you.
4: there is this safety, hope, future opportunity here, but it gets harder. What needs to happen is a lot, a lot of construction to reconstruct the way we thought about, the thoughts we had about Canada that we thought we could just come dive into it. Imagine being a doctor, a nurse, a police officer, and you have to start from the beginning. There is education that you need to, to get. Certain lifestyle that we thought we would have is not what we're seeing. How do we obtain it? A lot of education, a lot of understanding, a lot of patience, a lot of resources
2: but education goes both ways. Akir told me about a woman outside her community who'd wanted to help, but didn't quite understand what they needed. We need to be given the, you know,
4: the... I want to say this in a very respectful way. Don't... Don't go buying me stuff. Let me go buy it. I know what to get. Uh, financial support gift cards, um, brand new clothings, because majority of South Sudanese, even myself, we lived on hand-me-downs, nothing new. Reliving that in Canada, that's sad. Um, I was telling a lady, she's like, well, what do you need? Can I bring you some clothing from thrift store? I said, no. I want our people to get brand new things. I want them to know they also deserve that. They can have that. I'd rather give a woman a gift card to go buy herself a brand new dress from the mall. She's gonna appreciate that she made that choice. She chose the, the mall, she chose the dress. She's given some sort of dignity, some sort of respect, some sort of honor that she has a choice and not just given anything that others don't want or may not need.
2: As I'm listening to Akir and Stephen, I get it. When living in refugee camps, they were given leftovers, used goods that no one else wanted, handouts, hand-me-downs. So now, no matter how well-meaning the charity, it has a different meaning to them. It triggers the indignity of everything they've gone through. Akir and Stephen know firsthand what their community needs. They're refugees helping refugees. I am very passionate
4: to help my fellow Sudanese because I've experienced the pain I thought the same way they thought. I felt the same way they felt. I was scared to ask questions. I was scared to go talk to someone else.
2: Akir launched an organization called Best Help Family Foundation to help educate, counsel and support her Sudanese community. She even delivers groceries, culturally familiar food to families in need. This is on top of her full-time job as a counselor and mother of four, plus a leadership role at her church. I created Best Health Family Foundation because I saw a lot of results
4: of the works that I was doing individually, plus the help of my husband. He's my cheerleader. He is there. He's the guy who gets all the groceries out, piles them out for me, uh, organizes for me. I saw the result of helping five people, 10 people, 20 people, but consistent. So I said, why don't I start an organization where people can recognize that if there is a South Sudanese being arrested and they don't speak English, call Best Help Family Foundation. If there is a child in school that is being bullied from South Sudan, yet is not communicating call Best Help Family Foundation. If there is a child that needs to be adopted um, or abused in any form, and is South Sudanese, call Best Help Family Foundation. If there's a young man who's involved in gang violence, yet he can't talk, he feels he's outnumbered, call Best Help Family Foundation. So I saw it almost like a help center, but majority of help is for the South Sudanese to, to rise again. to to change their history in Canada to bring a better story aside from gang violence, um, robbery, domestic violence, high-rate South Sudanese community. It really gave me passion to to want to reduce all of these numbers or statistics and have when you hear of South Sudanese you would say Oh, yeah. They're great, hardworking people. They're doing amazing.
2: These days, Maddie John is a busy volunteer at the church and with the Best Help Family Foundation. She wants to help others the way Akir helped her when she was a struggling single mom
5: i think akira has helped me um in a lot of ways as a counselor she has been someone that i can speak to freely which i cherish so much because that is something that i don't do very often um she has been someone that in the craziest way actually it's almost as if she can sense when something is wrong (laughs) before I open up to tell her. And I admire that so much, and I hold that so close to my heart. I came from a very, like, I want to say broken past or something. Like, I had a lot of wounds, I was in a lot of pain, and I kept it to myself. My past pain um, came from just... Being a single parent, raising my daughter on my own, feeling like I didn't really have a lot of support, and also just coming from um, broken relationships and feeling alone, feeling like I didn't have anyone that I could trust, Um, feeling like there was nowhere to turn, and also being a closed-off person. I think that no matter what you're going through, you don't have anyone to share it with. So you walk around with a lot of your pain. And I could speak for anyone, when you find a place where you feel welcomed or you feel like somebody is going to listen to you and not judge you, you instantly want to be in that atmosphere all the time.
2: Despite the hardships, people like Maddie see hope for the Calgary Sudanese community.
5: I have seen God's work in my life, so I believe that there is hope because I was one of those people who could have ended up dead or in a situation where I overdosed on drugs or something. Um, But instead, you know, I had an encounter with amazing people who are in the church, who want to serve the community, and through having that relationship with them, I was able to get out of that kind of situation. So I believe that there is hope for the people who are looking for it. I think that more people have to get involved with speaking up and more people have to be aware of what's actually happening because surprisingly to some people, this is something that sounds like it's all the way in the U.S., not close in their neighborhood. So I feel like there needs to be more awareness so that people can collaborate and help one another to make sure that these things don't happen as often as they do.
6: Voice is something that um, everyone should have. One of the uh, major problems is if you have been oppressed for so long, you have been pushed down for so long, It's very difficult for you to trust the system itself until we empower the person uh, from that community to be the voice, to bring the concern, to bring the challenges to the table. By doing so, you are giving us our dignity. And I believe when we do this, we will see a lot of people start coming up. We'll see a lot of people start, you know, being proud to be part of this great nation.
4: When people hear I'm a counselor, they're like, what? How did she do it? Was her parents rich? Did she not struggle? Oh, I struggled, but I had a passion, a determination to live a certain way and obtain it the right way. Nobody was cheering me on when I was in school. Nobody was saying, great job, you're doing amazing, you will do great things. We don't have that. Our parents never got that, so they cannot give us what they don't have. So our organization cheerleads for our young men and women, telling them, you are smart, you can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. You're smart, you're strong. Go get it.
1: founder of the Best Help Family Foundation, Akir Melkwal. That doc was produced by Alice Cho with Allison Cook. It was made through the CBC Doc Mentorship Program, which helps up and coming producers make radio documentaries. You can read more about this story and see photos of Akir and Stephen on our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. That's all for us this week. The Dog Project is produced by Allison Cook, Sherry Okeke, Tanera McLean, Kristen Nelson, Joan Weber, and me. Althea Manason is our digital producer, and our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. I'm A.C. Rowe. Thanks for listening.